The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. praying that the Word that I have received will go out and touch each one of your hearts this morning. Um, this is a passage uh, that we're going to get into that, that can be a little bit convicting. I had some folks after first service tell me like I felt a little convicted, and that's good. All right, that's good. That's where we should be. Uh, this morning, uh, we are going to get into James. Uh, it's in chapter 1, verses 20 through, 22 to 27. Uh, if you want to turn there and, and just kind of mark it, stick your finger in there, that's where we're going to be in a little bit. Uh, if you don't know where James is, it's in the New Testament. Uh, it's almost towards the end. So if you flip back, there's about that much in the back, and you'll find it. <laughs> Hope that helps. Um, but today we are continuing with this uh, series, Unashamed, talking about our unashamed witness, how we are to, um, in light of the gospel, how our lives are to change and how we are to live out a life of being witnesses. Um, and I want to talk about that for a minute before we get into the passage because it's very important that we understand that role. Our gospel purity, which is what we're talking about today, is in our active witness. Now, when you think of a witness, um, this is somebody who has seen something and they are proclaiming the truth. Put it in a courtroom, you have the witness will come up and say, this is what I saw, and they're, they're telling the truth, they're proclaiming the truth of what they know. And so biblically, when we see that uh, we have received the gospel, we are proclaiming unashamedly what we have witnessed. And so when we're called to be witnesses, we have to understand that this is an active, uh, active calling. It's not something that we can just uh, sit back on. It, it, we are commanded to go and take this good news to those who are dying and, and those who are in an unbelieving world. And so... Uh, the big thing about this is that the gospel changes everything. Every part of your life should be changed at that moment that, that you had received the gospel and it's been implanted in your heart. Um, there should be evidence. You know, one of the things we talk about uh, as, as we've gone through this series, it, it, one of those elements of the gospel is newness of life. There should be something that changed in us. And it should be really everything. It might not be instantaneous, but a progression as we are changed to Christ's likeness. Uh, you see this repeatedly in, in God's Word. Um, people who might have heard but didn't really bring it into heart until they had an encounter with Christ. So even the, the disciples, um, they have seen Jesus murdered, and, and you know that the wrath of God was poured out on him. They've laid him in a grave, but now they're huddled, right? After that, they're huddled, scared, anxious about the future. They, they don't seem to have a leader right then. They don't know what to do. And then they have an encounter with the risen Lord. And they go from being scared and huddled and hiding to being bold proclaimers of the gospel, saying, I don't care what you do to me, 
to include prison, to include death, I am going to proclaim the word of God. I'm going to tell you the truth because I know it. And, and that knowing went from my head into my heart. We see this repeatedly with, uh, there's actually a passage in, in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verse 7, that talks about like the sequence of how Jesus revealed himself after he has risen and the people are changed. And today we're going to talk about one of those people, particularly is James. Now, the, the title of this letter is not like the, the letters that Paul writes where he titles it to a person and he's writing to a person. So James is the author, but it's not to himself, obviously. It's a general letter to all the believers who are out. In fact, uh, there's an interesting pass. The, the verse that starts it is James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. So he's saying, hey, all you uh, Jewish believers in the Messiah, in Jesus, I have some news for you. I'm going to tell you kind of how to live in light of what you received. And James, if you have not read it, this is one of the most practical books about how to live our Christian faith. So I would encourage you, Start, if you've never read it, go through today, uh, take some time, read through it, and, and really receive kind of what it means to live as a witness. Now, James is interesting because James is not James and John that we see as, as the disciples. Um, this is James, the brother of Jesus, the son of Mary and Joseph, right? And, and he is... I don't know. Do you have a brother? I have two brothers. Here, here, here. I have an older brother. Pretty good guy. If he tried to tell me that he was the son of God, yeah, right. right. I'm not going to believe this. So I can identify with James when it says, or it has a passage in John 7 where it talks about his, his brothers are basically ridiculing him, saying, yeah, if you're really who you say you're, you are, go up to Jerusalem and prove it. And then it says, Point blank, they did not believe. And I can identify with that because if my brother told me he was God, I would not believe. But then, again, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, it talks about Jesus appears to James, his brother, and this changes everything. Yes, he believes. He's had an encounter with Christ, the risen Lord. Just like if we are a believer, each one of us has had an encounter with God, with the risen Christ in some way, and it should change us. And for James, it changed everything about his life. He gives himself to service. If you notice from, from chapter 1, verse 1, he refers to Christ as the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, this is a change because I'm not going to call my brother Lord for anything, right? Um, but he knows who Jesus is now. And, and he goes on to lead the church in Jerusalem. He, he's, he is one of the prominent leaders. Uh, he's referred to throughout the, the New Testament. And then his witness actually leads to his being martyred. And as I studied this, that was an interesting thing to me because the, the Greek word for witness is the same root for martyr. It's martus. And that, like, kind of was convicting to me. 
is my witness so bold as to possibly be martyred? And that's what happened to James. He, he was stoned to death for his belief, for his faith. And so we see that it has to make a full change. And, and what I use to help me understand this and put it in perspective in my life is the idea of head, heart, and hands. My knowledge of who God is through study, who Christ is and what he's done, then transfers to my heart and it creates this passion in me. This passion, this love for him that because he loved me first, I can love him and then I can love others. And that drives action, my hands. And the problem that James addresses is that there are some who are not driven to action. They're just hearers of the word. And this is a sign that there hasn't been a complete regeneration, a new life, because they aren't doing anything with that faith that they've received. In fact, before our passage, a little bit higher, it talks about in verse 21, when we have received with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save our souls. Uh, we, the implanted word, the gospel, the good news that Jesus is who he says he is and he did what he said he would do and accomplished our freedom, right? That implanted word implanted into our heart when we have received that with meekness, humility. Now, I love this word meekness. I hate the fact that our um, English translation of, of meek sounds too close to weak, right? And so we think in some, some way, like once we receive that word, we're supposed to be kind of weak and pitiful and, and drawn back. But I want to change your picture this morning of what meekness means. Um, the, the visual that I use for this is that of a war horse, a large, powerful steed, strong, has a mission to do. And once that bit goes into its mouth, it is steered and directed, all that power, wherever the rider wants it to go. And as we receive that bit, that as we receive the gospel and sub submit ourselves humbly, it doesn't weaken us. All our gifts, all our talents, everything we have is now just steered and directed and focused on proclaiming the gospel. And so when we receive it with meekness, then we can go into what James tells us to do. And James' main point in this whole book is the first part of our passage today it is to be doers of the word and not hearers only. And so the gospel is displayed in our complete witness, not just our words. And this, if you're taking notes, that's kind of our big deal today. It's not just what we say, but the gospel is displayed in our complete witness. Everything we do, everything we say, every part of our lives. We have to understand that we are not just saved from something. We're not just saved from the penalty of our sin, from eternal damnation, but we are saved to something, to a great something, to, to a life and a mission together with Christ. He's given us the Great Commission, to take this gospel and go and tell people about it 
and build them up and teach them so that their life will be changed also by the Spirit of God. We get to partner with Him. And so we are going to talk about what it looks like to be an active witness. Witnesses are active. It, it, it's, you have to change this in your mind to be a verb. It is not that I am a witness, like an identity, which it is in a way, but there's an active aspect of it. We have to be doing as witnesses. Witnesses are active, and, and so we're going to get into verse 22 right now. It says, but, that but, all these, we're pointing back, it's, it's talking about you've received that implanted word. But, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away at once, forgets what he was like. We're going to pause right there. Um, th this is that idea of, of the person who is a hearer only. Now, I want you to think about a mirror. Um, you stand in front of a mirror to get a reflection of, of yourself. Now, some of you will fix your hair. I obviously won't. Um, but you'll look, and as you see it, you'll see what needs to be adjusted, what needs to be fixed, what needs to be changed, prettied up a little, whatever, right? But then if you just go away and have done nothing with that knowledge, you're like the person who hears the gospel, but their heart is not changed. And they're not going to do anything about it. This natural man who looks intently, right? There's, there's an effort here. He's very much about looking and seeing, but then goes away and does nothing. This is what it's like when we just hear the word and we don't do anything about it. But then it goes on to say, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doings. There's a lot to this, uh, starting with the idea of the perfect law. The law was, was perfect in its use which was to show us that we were sinners and to reveal that, that separation, that there was this gulf because of our sin that couldn't be traversed, it couldn't be crossed to get back to God. And so we're looking at this perfect law, and the only reason it's perfect is looking backwards through Christ's work. When he kept the whole law, when there was no sin in him. And then, because of his efforts, we are able to look at the law of liberty, the freedom that we have received as followers of Jesus. And, and so, I mean, this whole series, and in fact our whole lives, has been about the gospel. And so, yeah, we're going to talk about the gospel. What is it? Because this perfect mirror, the, this, the perfect law that we're gazing into, the law of liberty, is the gospel. And so we will walk away from the gospel changed as doers. The gospel, that God is holy, that in the beginning, out of an overflow, an abundance of his love, 
mercy and grace, he created. He created a world and he created us. And it was meant to be that we walked together in perfect relationship. But we had a problem because we started lusting after something we weren't given, thinking maybe God was holding something back from us. When we were tempted to take and eat of the, the fruit, the only thing that God said wasn't good for us, but we said, he must be holding out. There has to be something good there. I want it. And because of that, sin separates us. And, and, and we have to understand that the sin that was committed then, just through history, it has trickled down. We are active participants in that rebellion. We're active participants in the rebellion against God because that sin separates us. And God knew that. And from that very moment, he gave us hope anyway. He said, I got a plan that, that the son of the woman would crush the head of the snake, that, that sin would be defeated. And so he put that plan into motion. And that was Christ in our place, that Christ would come down out of the glory that he deserves out of heaven, into the creation that he made, into the dirt, into the dust, walking with his creation, but able to keep the law perfectly. Tempted as we are in every way, but fully submitted to the Father, empowered by the Holy Spirit, was able to keep the law. And because he did that, he was the only sacrifice worthy to fulfill the justice of God. And so when he died in our place... For every sin, because every sin deserves death in the light of a holy and just God, when he died in our place, somehow there was a cosmic exchange and it counted for us. It counted for you, it counted for me. Christ in my place. And all he wants us to do is repent and believe. To turn from that old way. To change our hearts towards him and away from the sin that we lived in and were a part of and believe to trust that the work he did accomplished what he said it did. And when we do that, we come to newness of life. Now, I want you to think about this because a lot of times we focus on after death in eternity with God. Yes, it's going to be beautiful. We are going to be in his presence, worshiping for eternity, never tiring, but that newness of life, if you are a believer, starts right now. Amen. Starts right now. And what we're going to talk about is, is how that gospel purity in our newness of life, what we do with what we have received. How we're to be doers and not hearers only. So as we get into verses 26 and 27, it starts to talk about religion. And some people have a bad taste about religion. Uh, religion can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. When James is talking this, he's talking about pure religion, the purity of the gospel. The, the change in us when we are following the truth, the only truth, and that is Jesus. And so when you hear that, we, we tend to think of just the outward trappings, right? Just the ceremony, just the talk. 
And, and James is against that just as Jesus was. He railed against those who were, they, they had a sinful heart. There was no change in their heart, but their outward appearance was religious. But what James is talking about is pure, true religion, true belief in Christ, the gospel purity. And this comes from our pure words, our pure work, and our pure walk. And we're going to take a look at pure words first. So it says in verse 26, If anyone thinks he is religious, a believer, a follower, and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Notice James does not mince words, right? He's very direct. It is worthless. If it's just about your tongue, out of a deceived heart, and when we talk about deceived heart, we're talking about there's some idol in that heart that is not Jesus, and there has not been a true, pure change that, that we did not receive the implanted word. We just heard it. And, and in that, we, we speak and we might say some of the right things, but it's worthless because the heart hasn't been changed. A lot of times we think of these things, the change in our tongue, the change in our heart, and, and we just think, I'm just not supposed to say bad things. I'm not supposed to cuss, and I'm not supposed to be mean with my words. But that isn't the fullness of it. it, it's, it our words flow out of our heart, and if we have idols in our heart, we need to bridle our tongue. And we need to submit our heart and mouth to Christ, our words to Christ. And when we do that, we have pure words. And he goes on to say, Verse 27, religion, following, believing, that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. As I was studying, I, I, I came to this, and, and I know what it means, but... What I realize is, especially in America, we don't even use the term orphans hardly at all anymore. We talk about wards of the state or, or children in the system, the foster care system. Um, but we don't really understand orphan. And, and we might talk about widows, but we, it's, it's not something that comes up in a lot of our everyday conversation. But this is is a representation, a representation of uh, an age-old look at who was vulnerable. All right, All throughout the Old Testament, when God lays down His law, He tells them to take care of the widows and orphans, the, the unloved and the unprotected, the vulnerable, the weak, those who might be on the fringe, he passes laws that say, when you harvest, leave a little bit. Don't go back and collect up all the scraps, but leave it for those who can't care for themselves. And the reason we use widows and orphans is that um, in those days, in biblical times, everything came through the man as the head. He was the property owner. Anything that was to be owned was owned by him, and therefore, if he was not in the picture... For the children, there was no inheritance. For, for the wife, there was no protection, no safety, no security. 
And so this got me thinking about the widows and orphans in my mind, in our life. Who is vulnerable is a good word. Who, who is vulnerable in our lives that, that we might cross paths with? There's, there's two parts that I saw to this uh, of how we care for them. Um, we care for the physical needs of the widows and orphans, for the vulnerable. Because there are physical needs that need to be met. And if we don't meet those needs, how can we provide the spiritual needs? How can we show them the truth if, if, I'm, if I'm starving and you come up to tell me about Jesus, but I can't hear you because I am starving, then you're not doing me any good. But on the flip side, if you come up and give me food and, and, and take care of my hunger right now, but you don't point me to Jesus, then you have not made an eternal impact on me. And I'm going to be hungry again. So I need both the physical care and the spiritual care. If I'm cold and you don't give me a coat, I, I probably can't hear what you're telling me about the love of Christ because I don't see it. But if I care for that physical need and then I'm able to give you the true need, the need for Jesus, you're able to receive that and I've taken care of the, the true need in the end. So we have to look at these, but I have a question for you. Who in your circles, your relationships, maybe it's, it's family, maybe it's friends, maybe it's at work, who do you cross paths with regularly that is vulnerable? And how can we serve them? There's a lot of organizations out there doing great work that we can partner with. And I'll tell you, some of the vulnerable people that came to my mind, um, there are children that, other than the food that they get at school, don't eat. They might have both parents. They're not technically an orphan, but they are very vulnerable. Who's feeling that need? It should be us as believers, because we, we've been called to that. Um, maybe it's a single mom. You know, uh, a very special lady to our family came to mind. Um, my wife, Terry, is, has a huge heart, and she came home one day and said, hey, there's this lady with three little girls, about the age of our three little girls at the time, um, that is going through a separation. She has nowhere to go, and I invited her to come stay with us. And at first I was a little apprehensive, but thank God that he put it in our heart to care for them because they were basically widows and orphans, a widow and orphans. And they came and they stayed with us for an extended time, and we were able to show the love of Christ. They had heard the love of Christ. They knew, but it wasn't just our words. We, we brought them into our home. We shared what we had. And then we were able to help them get back on their feet. That is just one example of how you can do something. It might be 
Uh, when I was working in, uh, in Washington, D.C., we'd take the subway and the metro every day, and there was this lady with these little girls. And, and each day I would pass her, and as I noticed that I was seeing the same person, I, I started to give her what I had. Um, and, and I would sometimes buy food, and then a couple times I just sat down and played with the kids. I don't know why she was there, but she was obviously vulnerable. If she had decided that that was the only thing she could do to care for her family, um, she needed some help. And although those things were just in the moment, but being able to sit down and show them that I appreciate that they have value and worth, they are created in the image of God. These are things that we can do. And I ask you, what in your life, where? Maybe it's somebody in your family. Maybe it's somebody in your circle of friends. Maybe it's somebody you pass on the way to work every day. Where can you extend grace? Where can you extend care? Where can you be a doer and not a hearer only? This is our, our, our pure work. The spiritual aspect of this that we have to understand, and, and I love the uh, Psalm, Psalm 68.5, it says that God, the Father in heaven, is the Father to the fatherless. When we are orphaned in this world, when we are unprotected, we have a Father in heaven who is perfect, and He will provide our needs. Jesus is our bridegroom, our husband, as the body of Christ. We are his bride. And so we, when we have that, we cannot be widowed. We belong to him, and he will hold us. And so we have to understand both the, the physical and the spiritual aspects of this and reach out and care for the vulnerable. So we have to have pure words. We have to have a pure work. And then we have to have a pure walk. And so after he talks about visiting the orphans and widows in their affliction, he says, and, this is part of our pure religion, and keep oneself unstained from the world, undefiled. And I will tell you that the vulnerable are usually in dark, dirty, bad places. Places that sin abounds. And how can we walk into those areas and not be defiled? If we look at Old Testament law and the rules of cleansing and ceremony to get clean and pure before you go into the presence of God, it was extensive. If you touched something that was sick or dead or bad, if you interacted with certain people who were outside of that purity, you would get defiled. But Jesus changed all that because he was pure. He was holy. And as you watch his life, he went and touched the leper. And the leper's disease didn't come onto him, but his purity and holiness poured out and made that leper clean. He visited the prostitutes and the tax collectors, the sinners, wherever they were. And it, he never became defiled. His pureness, his holiness, his righteousness went out and he made them clean. And as 
followers of Christ, as, as believers who have the Holy Spirit of God in us, we can take that wherever we go and not be defiled. We keep our hearts set on Christ. And when we go into those places, the light of Jesus will shine out from us. He will make them clean but they will not make us defiled. And it's very important that we understand that because a lot of times we can get that mentality of the priests, right? I don't want to go there because I don't want to get dirty. But Jesus doesn't give us that option. He calls us to that. Go outside the camp. Go to where it's dirty and give them the hope they need. Make sure that your walk remains pure because as you work through the power of Christ, you will remain clean and you will pour out his goodness, his pureness on all those who you encounter. So when we talk about gospel purity, we talk about pure words, pure work, and our pure walk. This is how we actively witness. So I'm going to challenge you. I want you to think about what we said. Where do you know that there's somebody vulnerable that you could care for? And remember that we are not just caring for a physical need, but we are doing that to point them to the eternal fulfillment of their needs, to Jesus. So I just charge you like James did. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. If you'll pray with me. Father in heaven, we love you. Oh, gosh, we are so amazed at your gospel, amazed at your care, amazed that you are all we need. You're the father to the fatherless. You are our bride's groom. We are your bride. Lord, you fulfill all our needs. And we thank you that you let us be a part of the mission. Lord, that through the, the shed blood of Christ, we can be clean and we can do the work that you have called us to. Help us to be your witness. Empower us through your spirit to be your witness. We love you and we are ever grateful. We pray in the beautiful, precious name of Christ. Amen.